Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Irwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, John Robinson, father of the first family to attempt colonization of outer space, found himself helplessly adrift when his line snapped while trying to repair navigational equipment. It is now shortly thereafter, as Maureen Robinson desperately tries to reach her husband before he slips farther off into the trackless void of outer space. Welcome back for episode two of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, how are you doing this week? I'm doing okay. Uh, We're actually counting down the... uh, uh, days until the new Lost in Space premieres on Netflix. Oh, so. is there going to be a new Lost in Space on Netflix? I missed that. I'll have to. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, it was somewhere on uh, uh, at the bottom of uh, page six, I think. Ah, okay. Well, good. Well, we'll have to. We'll have to look out for that. Did uh, you know there was actually? Of course, you know about the movie, but did you know there was like some uh, television pilot that they did for a reboot that. Uh, totally bombed. Did you read about that? I did read about that. I have never actually seen it, but uh, it's it's long overdue that they do actually a reboot of Lost in Space and get it on TV. You know, Star Trek's got how many reboots, but Lost in Space has been waiting for something like this. So I'm I'm pulling for it. I hope it's good. But uh, yeah, if they do it, remember how uh, much better they did the uh, Battlestar Galactica reboot. I mean, I I thought that was a horrible series, and then when they did the reboot, it was like this is a really good series. So uh, you know, it's not like all reboots are terrible. No, no. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Today, we're going to talk about the second broadcast episode of Lost in Space, titled "The Derelict." I'm excited to talk about this one, Kurt. After uh, watching this, because I really think this episode has some great uh, special effects shots. I think the script really continues the development of the characters. But I also have to say that there are certain scenes in this episode that truly reminded me of some later classic sci-fi TV and films. I may be way out to lunch here. I'm going to hold off. Just give me time when we get in to talk about the episode. I'll tell you which ones reminded me of things that we saw later. And you can tell me I'm all out to lunch. But uh, I have that little tidbit that I'd like to, to pursue. Did you enjoy watching the episode? Oh, yeah, it's got, uh, this episode has so much atmosphere in it. I mean, you can cut it with a knife, and it, it's it's really extremely atmospheric, probably one of the most atmospheric episodes of all time for Lost in Space. I agree, I agree. A big part of that is the music. The music is stupendous. I mean, uh, I like to have the soundtrack to this episode. It's that good. Oh, it's got some great, it's got some great music in it. We'll talk about the uh, composer for that a little bit. In fact, just to give a quick couple notes on the production, um, the script was written by Peter Packer, not Peter Piper, but Peter Packer, uh, based on a story 
by Shimon Winselberg. Again, we mentioned last time that Winselberg, who wrote both the unaired pilot and the premiere episode, was tasked by Irwin Allen to write storylines for the first six episodes. And Peter Packer, who was actually from England originally and a big fan of Westerns, did a lot of TV writing, Bonanza, Big Valley, The Virginian. He also wrote a couple episodes for uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. His big claim to fame, though, is he wrote 25 of the 83 episodes of Lost in Space. So he he wins the prize for the most scripts written. And I think he did a pretty good job on this one, I have to say. Yeah, it's very uh, nightmarish. It just, uh, you know, the, it gives you, this is almost like a, a bad dream, but one that you wake up thinking, oh, I want to remember this dream, even though it was scary to a great extent. I mean, it, it's, by, lo- by Lost in Space standards, this was a scary episode. Oh, it, it definitely was. It still has the serious feel, a creepy vibe to it, a lot of different elements, like you said, the music and the sound effects played into that. Episode was directed by Alexander Singer, and I think this was his only... Uh, directoral uh, job for Lost in Space. Still Jerry Briskin producer, executive producer Irwin Allen. The show was filmed from the 29th of July through the 9th of August, 1965. Eight days, again, two days over the allotted six days. So they, they're breaking the budget here, much to Irwin's dismay. It aired on Wednesday night, 7.30 to 8.30, September 22nd, 1965. No summer repeat again. The story has no guest stars, unless you count the Bubble Men, and we'll get to them a little bit later. But uh, uh, all the main characters, the the Robinsons, Don, the Robot, and Dr. Smith are featured, but no guest stars. And before we dive into the show, I just want to mention, because we talked about it last night, this is Family Hour. Lost in Space uh, debuted very strongly, 7.30 to 8.30. The first half hour, it was up against on ABC, Ozzy and Harriet. And also on NBC, The Virginian. In the second half hour, 8 to 8.30 on ABC, they had the Patty Duke show and The Virginian was still on. But Lost in Space was beating all those shows by a mile. So it was very, very off to a very good start at the very beginning. So that was good news for uh, Irwin Allen. Yeah, they sound like real boring (laughs) competition. And here you have this new exciting uh, series, which is not only the first... Uh, mainstream science fiction television show, but it's also right during the space race. So everybody was excited about this anyway. So it's it's no surprise that uh, all the televisions are probably tuned into this to see just how good is it going to be. And I don't think they were disappointed. Oh, I don't think they were either. They'll get a little bit more competition after the mid-season replacement of Ozzy and Harriet with Batman, but we'll get to that later. Okay, let's dive into the story now. Act one. Again, I mentioned this last week, long opener. I don't know if you noticed this, but it's like nine minutes before we get to the opening credits. So another long opener. But we've got a a narration at the beginning, and it's basically setting up what we left off with last week from the cliffhanger. Maureen is outside the spaceship trying to rescue John, who is left floating away when his space, space tether, that's hard to say, space tether snapped last week. She tries to throw him a line and misses, and then she makes another attempt, and finally he catches that line. It's just some moments of sheer drama there. Yeah, I got to wonder, what is this thing that they're using to shoot the, the rope there? I mean, it almost looks like a spear gun. And even if it's not a spear at the end of it, I mean, that rope is so straight 
and erect. <laughs> if that hits him, it, it's bound to at least punch a hole in the spacesuit. I'm just saying. I was thinking it looked like a spear gun, yes. <laughs> it was a little bit scary. But, uh, but, but they call it the, the rope gun. That doesn't sound as scary, but you know, no. why don't they just call it the, the rope spear gun? Because you know, if you have a spear gun, they all have ropes attached to the spears. Most of them do at any rate. It's going to be the same sort of thing. And in the vacuum of space, it's not going to take a whole lot to puncture that. that. Uh, and of course, once you puncture it, if you've got any pressure on the inside, you just kind of go like a big balloon and go you know, flying all over the universe until you're all bled out of air. <laughs> Fortunately, that doesn't happen to them, though. Fortunately, it doesn't happen. He manages to catch the rope and come back in. Now, before we go on real quickly, am I completely out to lunch? But this sort of reminded me of the scene in 2001 where Dave goes after uh, Frank when he's floating off into space. I just had a little bit of a, of a, of a reminder of that scene, which wasn't, uh, which wasn't filmed for a couple years later, but it, it sort of reminded me of that. That's a bit of a stretch, I think, but it was, it was what was on my mind when I was watching it. Well, there is something very, uh, how should you say, not frustrating, but just like you're out of control because you're in a vacuum. You know, you can't even uh, swim through the air to get where you want to go. So it's all just totally up to chance and random. At one point, she shoots the rope and he starts to float off. And then just by sheer happenstance, he seems to kind of come back. I don't even, you know, whatever the space breeze was, it apparently changed directions. So it seemed a little bit odd. <laughs> the space breeze, yes. <laughs> the solar wind. Maybe he, well, you know, let out a little bean uh, 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 gas or something, and maybe that shot him back. You know, <laughs> he'll take it whatever he can get. Whatever he can get. Well, he's he gets back, but... Just at that moment, don't breathe easy because another dilemma is approaching. There's a comet, of all things. It's a comet. It's headed our way. Is it going to hit us? It won't have to. Even if it misses us by 5,000 miles, its heat could shrivel us to a crisp and nothing flat. Can't you change our flight path? With your parents outside? Their guys would go like that. How long? We can wait maybe about four minutes. A hot comet. Now this, <laughs> yeah, a hot yeah. comet. But but the, he he's caught hold of the rope by now, and they they do. Uh, it's not enough. Okay, so the hot comet comes, but then he still wants to do. He wants to fix the antenna. So right, that's so right. bizarre. Don, Don, Don is trying to tell him, "Hey, we got about three or four minutes. We maybe you better get inside here." And uh, no, no, no. I, I've got to. I've I've got to fix the scanner. Yeah, because so, I'm going to have to put on the spacesuit again. You know, that's that's too much work for me. And <laughs> and just the fact that my wife is out here, I'm not concerned about her safety either. No, we're going to stay out here and finish this thing, and uh, observe the comet as it comes in. Well, I thought that was that was funny that he he insisted on staying out there. But the other thing I thought that was kind of interesting, I don't know if you caught this, but in the previous episode when he was trying to climb up the side of the spaceship with the rope, he just couldn't make it up there. And this time. He has no trouble at all walking up the, and he has nothing. He's just walking up the side of the rope. So I guess yeah. he's gotten his space legs by that point. Right, and there's no harness whatsoever, dude. You almost just floated <laughs> away. Okay, you would think you'd be a little concerned. Hey, maybe I better just at least hold on to this rope while I go up there. And from what I can tell, he's not. He doesn't have magnetic shoes or anything, but he seems to kind of, you know, stick to the ship. So it's uh, it's strange, but it's effective. I mean, you know, I, yeah. certainly the audience back then isn't going to know the difference. No. They haven't been spoiled by all these other 
uh, modern recreations of weightless flight and spacewalks. They're all just yeah. sitting there going, wow. And the backgrounds look terrific. And, you know, it's overall, it is pretty cool. And, you know, now that you mention it, that antenna does kind of look like the back, the uh, the antenna on 2001. And I think they had something similar to it in another uh, uh, movie made by the same director. Well, not the same director as 2001, but the special effects guy from 2001, a guy named Tomil. Uh, T O M B I L or T O B M I L. He also Oh, I think on, you mean uh, Trumbull, Douglas Trumbull. Trumbull. That's right. Yes, and he, he did the special, uh, a lot of the special effects for two thousand and one. And that's uh, right. That's they right. had a pretty cool looking. Uh, 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 he did a movie that he directed himself called Silent Running with Bruce Dern, and that was a great movie. And that also had a uh, uh, antenna that needed repair, not a central to the plot as it was in 2001 but the the little robots work on it so uh that's a cool movie too if you haven't seen that that's worth seeing have you seen that one silent oh I, yes i've seen it but it's been quite a while i, I i'd actually like to watch that again yeah um, <laughs> the, the i do part... i do like that movie bruce dern is is perfect for that role you know yeah he is great for that and the showstopper of the entire movie is when they want to make sure that you get the ecology message, so they start playing a Joan Baez song <laughs> in the middle of the movie. <laughs> and, it's, you know, and it's her singing it, you know? And it's sort of like, where is the vacuum of space when we need it? You know? <laughs> so we have to listen to this entire, an entire Joan Baez song just to make sure we all walk out of the movie saying, yes, we all want to be environmentalists and stop overpopulation of planet Earth. But other than that, it was a great, a wonderful, wonderful movie. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot. You know, oh, I wanted to mention one other thing about that scanning antenna. You will see that scanning antenna. We mentioned last week about how Irwin Allen is, is famous for reusing and recycling things. That scanning antenna is used on a lot of different things. As a matter of fact, it's part of part of an evil female robotics that uh, the the robot falls in love with. So keep an eye out for that. I'll try to mention <laughs> that when we get to that episode. I was going to say, I'd be surprised if he doesn't use it in a costume somewhere. And sure enough. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, it's, 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 it's a, it's a beauty. Anyway, Dr. Smith, while this is all going on on the upper deck and outside the spaceship, Dr. Smith, we cut away, we see him on the lower deck and he's reprogramming the robot to respond only to his commands, setting up a series of future gags that will come back to, to haunt him and the rest of the crew. I think he actually says something, he tests it. I don't know if he does it at that point or later on, uh, but the robot responds, uh, correctly by crushing the the bar the steel bar and dr smith does a very maniac like laugh you know beautiful <laughs> that's and right he's, he's definitely into it and does a beautiful rendition of uh, his his version of uh, uh the evil dr evil i suppose yes the snidely whiplash laugh exactly so um, that comet is getting uh, too close for comfort now. It's starting to get, it's very hot, a hot comet. I love that. Uh, <laughs> a big ball, ball of dirty ice is, yep. is, is affecting them. But what, I thought the, the effect that was actually, the lens flare effect for the comet itself, it's cheap, but it was effective. It, it's, mm -hmm. it, uh, it definitely made you feel like there was some, some d dilemma that was approaching. Oh, um, and, and, they, and, and they cut back to, the guys uh, at the airlock, and every time they do, it does get significantly brighter. And oh, they, yes. do, they yeah. do a very good job on, you know, uh, uh, more rather than showing the comet really getting closer and bigger, they, they infer it by the intensity of the light, and that works real well. 
Oh, it does. So John is able to fix the scanner, but unfortunately now the comic is so close that the heat has expanded the airlock hatch and they can't get it open. So this is really getting to be a dilemma now. Of course, and, uh, Professor Robinson, being the, the pseudo-genius that he is, reverts to the old, I, I really want this elevator to get here quick strategy. You just keep pressing the button more and more, you know. <laughs> and then, then he starts pounding. He starts right. pounding on the outside. Like, that's going to open it up? I don't think so. But, hey, <laughs> we're getting the message. You really want to get in there bad. And the interesting thing is that his wife never says anything. Where does he get this wife? i got to find somebody like that. One who doesn't sit there and go, I told you we shouldn't have stayed out here. Oh, come on. Let me do it. You know, really? I didn't know there were wives like that on this planet. Well, then again, they're not on the planet anymore. I guess that explains it. <laughs> that explains it. So anyway, they can't open it from the outside. So Don decides to get his spacesuit on and climb into the uh, airlock and see if he can open it from the inside. But he can't budge it either. The comet's getting really close and John says, uh, you better get out of here. You know, if, if you can't get it open in the next couple seconds, you know, just leave us here and save the rest of the family. But of course, Don's not going to do that. But John and Maureen are starting to fade fast now. And then it's the very moment when all of a sudden, Dr. Smith appears to complain about the air conditioning. <laughs> Something's got to be done about the comfort control system. Where's the major? In the airlock. Mother and Dad are still trapped out there, and the comet's getting closer. Comet? The Major shouldn't be in the airlock. He should be in here trying to get us out of this inferno before we burn up. <laughs> He's always there to add to the foul air, isn't he? Yes. Someone has to do something about the comfort control in here. <laughs> And of course, when when he realizes that they're still stuck in the comets approaching, he's like, "Well, let's let's get out of here right away." Exactly. Uh, totally unconcerned <laughs> with who's outside. So, uh, Will, the, the boy genius, of course, thinks, "What about the fire extinguisher? Great, send Doctor Smith to go get it." And so yeah, Doctor <laughs> Smith knows where all the fire extinguishers are. After all, he was throwing them at the windshield. It's exactly. a good thing none of them actually, you know, went out there. You're going to need all these guys, but for some reason, they've got to a fire extinguisher right there next to the airlock. Did you notice that? I mean, it is right next to the airlock, basically next to the windshield, okay? And they're going to send someone down below to get a bigger fire extinguisher? Why don't you give them the small one for now and be, you know, send someone down below to get the bigger one? But I guess they needed to add to the suspense. And sure oh, enough, yes. that works because uh, Dr. Smith disappears and Judy says, "Where's I'll see what's taking Dr. Smith so so long. And so she disappears. And so, you know, I'm kind of surprised I don't cut away and see Dr. Smith playing chess with a robot or something. But, but he comes back with a fire extinguisher, the big one. Yes, he does come back. And uh, I did notice there was one small glitch. Uh, I think it was just an editing glitch right there. Pe at one point, Penny asks Will, they're standing right by the door and says, do you think they're still alive or something to that effect? Yeah. <laughs> and Will says, oh, I, I, they've got to be alive. Well, they had just shown them still pounding on the outside of the door two seconds later. And why didn't she go look at the window and out the out the uh at the, the porthole to see what they're doing. But uh, I think they just sort of got that out of sequence there. It was kind of funny, too, how they have the, you know, the two girls and the little boy looking through the windows, and they're looking uh, suitably uh, uh, worried. And uh, keeping to the uh, sexual mores of the time, 
when it comes for a brilliant idea, does it come from either the two girls who are both much older than Will? No, it's the little twerp on board who's, what, uh, eight years old or something, maybe five, six. <laughs> How old is Will supposed to be? Do you know? I think he's supposed to be eight or nine years old, I think. Yeah, so he comes up with a pretty—I guess he saw this in the blob or, or something. He realizes that— uh, Fire extinguishers, if they use CO2, can actually reduce the temperature, which is a pretty smart little thing. But, you know, you might have thought maybe, you know, the blonde girl could have thought of it. But no, that wouldn't play into the blonde motif of the times. But but they're all just relieved that he gets that that saves the day. And it's not the first time either. Well, that's a that's something you're going to see throughout the show, I think, is the very traditional gender roles in this show the 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 boys are they're all about uh, taking on the tasks and the women have to stay behind protected and everything occasionally they deviate from that but that's very much 1960s values as far as that goes so yeah and as judy's there looking through the window at one point she says hurry up don hurry up and i'm sitting there thinking well that kind of sounds like pillow talk there but you know (laughs) let's not go there okay all right well anyway that basically took us to the uh, opening credits. We come back from the credits and they they cut away to a short scene back at Alpha Control where the TV announcer is basically recapping everything that's happening and basically putting an exclamation on the point that the Robinsons are lost in space. We got back to the Jupiter 2 and by this time John and Marine are completely passed out. What I thought was interesting about this is there's that little platform on the outside of the spaceship and they're basically both laying down on the <laughs> on the platform it's like maybe there's artificial gravity on that platform too. i wasn't quite getting that but anyway that's that's fine as you mentioned smith comes right finally comes back up and the fire extinguisher is passed off to don and he uses the fire extinguisher the hatch gets open they drag maureen and john in and it's been a tough couple days for maureen i'd say every one of these episodes so far she's had a a major uh physical stress but she's revived don't leave out Smith's classic line in there. He says something. I hope you children are more familiar with the navigation of the ship than I am. Why? Well, if the heat out there should affect our pilot. Do you always have to say things like that? And he kind of gets this sheepish look on his face. And it's, it's one of the few moments where, you know, he kind of looks uh, actually embarrassed for <laughs> speaking up. But it's, it's a classic line. It's going to be repeated every single episode, something along this line. This is, this is where Smith is starting to really establish his character as the guy who always says the wrong thing at the wrong time. <laughs> you can be counted on for that, that's for sure. The next we go through that scene, I, I think this is actually where you were talking about see, the scene where Smith is training the robot. Mm-hmm. I noticed the robot is still very mechanical, but it is the first time I think he says the, the famous robot line, it does not compute. Extend left arm. Excellent. Excellent does not compute. Extend right claw. Very good. I know. It does not compute. A little more homework this evening, my friend, and we should be able to take over this whole expedition and return immediately to our native soil. And uh, at some remark that Smith has made, but uh, Smith is totally focused on getting back to Earth. And he has the robot demonstrated his strength by crushing the can in front of him. And you're right, that was a very, that was an incredibly maniacal laugh that he gave there. So 
I think that more or less closes out the first act. We've gotten the done with that part of it. And then we go into act two. And I like this bit because it opens with uh, Professor Robinson sitting in his, his uh, cabin, writing, <laughs> writing in his diary with that cross-desk pen set. I think I got that for high school graduation. Dear diary, you'll never guess what I did today in space. <laughs> I better I better uh, put this little key and lock it, you know, so that my wife doesn't read this thing and uh, maybe wear it around my neck or something. No, it almost seems so juvenile, and yet at the same time, it's very reminiscent of Swiss Family Robinson, you know. Oh, it is. It is. And they keep that diary entry, you know, form of exposition uh, going for a few episodes, and then it, it sort of gets dropped after a while. But it was actually kind of a nice transition. We have a couple scenes that are just basically setting a, the stage. Don and Judy flirting up on the upper deck. and mm-hmm. Is that the... My goodness, is that the Big Dipper? Or are you oh, yeah. happy to see yeah. me? <laughs> and he's making some comment about, like, aren't you getting sleepy now? You know, mm, I don't know. Uh, but one of the funny things that uh, the professor says in his diary, I don't know if you caught this, but he, he mentions that the hyperdrive actually goes faster than the speed of light. So that's why they don't know where they are, because they, they were in the hyperdrive, and it, it went faster than the speed of light. Okay, so, you know, Alpha Centauri is less than five light years from Earth. It's like 4.8 or 4.2, I don't remember. It's been a long time since I made the drive. But if it's going faster than the speed of light, then how come it's going to take them over five years to get there? I'm confused. That doesn't quite <laughs> pan out. But, okay, we're not supposed to think these things. Well, maybe they were taking the long road. The to, scenic uh, route. Yeah. We, we want to make sure we avoid that comet and, of course, the big asteroid belt. Mm. That would explain it. John's checking in on the kids. Penny is sitting in her little ca- uh, cabin listening to Shakespeare. Did you recognize the voice on the tape there? Was it was it the robot again? No, it wasn't the robot. It was actually Richard Basehart from uh, Voyage oh. to the Bottom of the Sea, uncredited. Oh. And I got that from the uh, book uh, I mentioned last week, that uh, Mark Cushman's Irwin Allen's Lost in Space, an authorized biography. And then he, he pops in and checks on Will, who's using his Texas Instruments TI-65 calculator to try to fix their position. I really like, you mentioned the music before, there's some great scary music. I really like that there's sort of a sappy, I call it the family music theme that comes in here. And I, I know it's sappy and everything, but they use it a lot. And I really, it, it, always, it always makes me smile a little bit for some reason, that, that family music scene. And I, the composer for all the music in this episode uh, is a guy named Herman Stein. And I think we were talking about him before. He's actually got a pretty long pedigree. He wrote all those classic 1950s universal monster and science fiction horror uh, film scores, largely uncredited, believe it or not, like The Creature from the Black Lagoon and It Came from Outer Space. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, he's, he's really got a way. And I, I love this theme, but I, I really love some of the music it, that's playing later in the episode when they're confronted with the alien derelicts. So. And you know, what? one of the neat things about it and that really shows that this guy knows his stuff is that some of his music is not the type of stuff you're going to be whistling as you leave the theater. I mean, it's it's almost not music. It's just this atmospheric thing. Like, they've got this, this one thing that goes... <laughs> you 
And, you know, it's very effective in just winding you up. And that's kind of what it sounds like, something winding up and spinning. It it sort of reminded me of those things we used to have as kids that they were on a fishing line and you would swing it around your head and the faster you would swing it, it would make this, this like, you know... And, uh, you know, he he does things like that, which is very atmospheric. And I guess you don't have to pay the musician's union anything for that. But uh, it works. It's very effective. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, So anyway, Will thinks he knows where they might be. And and so John says, well, go tell Don if you think you are. It's almost as if he's just humoring the boy. But sure enough, he goes upstairs. And and next, John... pays a visit to Dr. Smith, who's also in his cabin, fiddling with the robot's power packs. And this leads to a little lecture from John about... Where'd you get this? And this? Ah, well, I had planned it as a surprise, but now I suppose you'll give it all away. Give what away? And deny me the simple pleasure I'd have derived from presenting all of you with a robot in full working order. Dr. Smith... Why didn't you ask for permission to tamper with that robot? Tamper? When every bit, every circuit, every last contact in it is as familiar to me as my own name? I don't tamper, uh, Dr. Robinson. I create new pathways in cybernetics for our little friend. Oh, it's pathways. The kind of pathways that could have wrecked this ship and almost cost us all our lives. But that's absurd. I was in the same danger as everyone else. Now you listen to me, Dr. Smith. How you came to be on this ship when we took off doesn't really matter right now. But just remember one thing. As far as I'm concerned, you're a stowaway. You're going to be treated as such. Well, when, when, when Robinson basically yanks open the door... Uh, which is probably not, a, I mean, he, he knocked for Will and, you know, he was courteous for his own daughters. <laughs> but when it comes to Smith, he just kind of yanks open the door. Excuse me, Dr. Smith. And the look that Dr. Smith gives the cat that ate the canary, you know, he still has the little yellow feather sticking out of his mouth. Right. He clearly is like, oh, dear. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, Dr. S- uh, Professor Robinson asked several questions and Smith just kind of sheepishly smiles and they, doesn't even say anything doesn't even offer defense but then he kind of you know like a cat he lands on all four and he says well i suppose you discovered my surprise i'm going to present the family with a totally operational robot you'll be amazed yeah anyway he he pretty much uh shuts uh smith down for a little bit but just at that moment we hear a a strange signal coming in over the intercom system something what could it be of course, Smith is sure it's his benefactors coming to his rescue and immediately pulls out that little walkie-talkie he had in the first episode and tries to make contact with them, but gets a, an earful of static for his uh, reward. Alois 14 Umbra. Alois 14 Umbra. Do you read? <laughs> now, he had reason to believe that that was... I mean, I, I think it's absurd. You know, you're billions of miles from Earth, and you think that they came to get the saboteur. You know, I mean, talk about... Uh, delusions of grandeur uh, that's assuming that they even had the technology to do it but uh during the intercom sequence they you hear don talking to professor robbins and he says well what do you think it is and he says well i know it's not one of ours so naturally you know if you don't believe that there's other space aliens out there and we had no reason to believe that there were 
uh, if you're a, just a meager saboteur, you would assume it would be your guys. Well, he certainly has that look on his face as if he knows exactly what's going on as soon as they hear about a, another spaceship. I love that scene, though. The, the rest of the crew is upstairs, and they're looking out the port or the, the viewport there, and the, uh, the alien derelict ship comes into view, and there it is, this gigantic... Uh, I don't know exactly what to call it. It's almost like a globe with a cone on the end. And... Yeah, it's the floating space cone. Yes. Uh, now, you know, that was a what was kind of cool about that seri- that that opening sequence where you first see, or, see it appear. They are approaching it, and he says, we should see it soon now. And it doesn't come into view. It fades into view. It's almost yes. like it's being decloaked, like right. it, was, it had a cloaking device. And right. uh, when it appears, it's already pretty close. It and is. Then, and I love those uh, those scenes where you're looking through the windshield. This was, this was also great with Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. I mean, they definitely had this this effect down pat, <laughs> you know, whether it's the giant squid tentacles right. reaching for you or the uh, the Cyclops, which looks very familiar to the one in Lost in Space. Uh, <laughs> you're always going to get a beautiful point of view of like, oh, my God, you know, this thing is huge. And here we are looking through this tiny windshield. And it's only a pane of glass. Of course, it's been it's been pressure tested with fire extinguishers, but for the most part, you know, it, it's like we're painfully close to this thing. And when it opens up and you start to go into it, and you're getting sucked in there with the the tractor beam or whatever, you almost feel like you're a fish about to get eaten by a jellyfish or something. I mean, that thing's opening up to you, and it is eating you. It's it's a great right. great sequence. Oh, I love that whole se- that whole series of effect shots where the Jupiter Two is circling around, and I love the line that John tells to Don's clearly uncomfortable being this close to such a large ship, not knowing what it is or what could happen to it, and 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 John keeps egging him on, get a little bit closer, circle around to the other side, and yeah, and John and says, what- John says, where's your scientific curiosity, right. and and Don says, it's back on Alpha Centauri or something. <laughs> the effects. <laughs> where we're supposed to go remember <laughs> yeah well his 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 uh, reluctance to get closer uh, was certainly justified because as soon as they get on the far side of that thing all of a sudden yeah, a tractor beam grabs the Jupiter 2 and starts pulling them in I don't think they call it a tractor beam but here was another uh, sequence that I thought reminded me Again, you'll call me crazy, but I couldn't help but think of the the famous scene in Star Wars where the Millennium Falcon is getting drawn into the Death Star, and that's there's no nothing. Moon. They can... Yeah, that's no moon. You know what? What do you mean? Of course, it's a moon. It's like, oh, you know, by, yeah. we better get out of here. You start to pull away, and things start to shake. No. Well, it's a tr- it's a trope now. Of course, we've seen it. I mean, I think even Star Trek, the original series, played on that thing before. But I don't remember any any science fiction movie doing that. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But uh, anyway, I thought that was really cool. One of the things I thought the the Jupiter 2 model looked really good. And I was reading in the book as well. They actually had two models that they used. They had a smaller model, which measured about 18 inches long. And that's the one they used that got sucked actually into the into the ship when you see both of the both of the models together and then they had a four foot model that they used for a lot of shots. And that one's the one that had the articulated landing gear that would come down. And in fact, they also had later on after the, you're inside the ship. There's a there's actually a full size prop that they built of the Jupiter two, that you can see them climbing down the the landing gear lever. And it was a very expensive prop, but it was only used in three episodes. This is one of the three episodes they used that in. Oh wow! So well, yeah. wouldn't, you, wouldn't you love to have a model of that derelict ship? 
I mean, that's a in black and white. It looks so great. It's something about it reminds me of a racer head. Did you ever see that movie, the David Lynch film? It's very dark and nightmarish as well, and it's about basically as industrial Philadelphia. I mean, you know, but it's so gritty, and that that ship has that look. There's just something very eraserheadish about it. And once you get inside, now once you get inside, if you felt like you were getting eaten by a, a starfish or a jellyfish before, you really feel like it when you get inside there because it's got all these moss-like fibers hanging down. You like you're the, in, inside the belly of the beast. It's very organic, and uh, you know these these. It, it kind of felt like uh, the inside of that movie, uh, a fantastic voyage where they get in the tiny little uh, ship and get injected into uh, uh, some uh, uh, scientist's brain or something like that. And you're inside and you see all the fibers inside. So you definitely know you're, you're in some sort of mixture of an organic slash technological ship. It's not just nuts and bolts. There's something going on there organically. Well, it's funny that you mention Fantastic Voyage because, as a matter of fact, <laughs> those sp- those Re- spider webs were <laughs> recycle actually alert. Recycle well, alert. Yes, this was an, a famous Irwin Allen, uh, and he got in a, it, it was it was infamous all over the 20th Century Fox lot. Fantastic Voyage was actually filming at the same time that Lost in Space was filming, and he had his prop people go out, and they've actually stole those props from the Fantastic Voyage set. They they <laughs> stole them and used them and put them back and hope no one would know <laughs> notice. But those are the actual those are actual props from Fantastic Voyage which hadn't even been released yet. That's right, Erwin. No one will notice because no one's going to just happen to see it on TV. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wanted to back up for just a second, though, because there's a great scene when Smith, after they've landed, they've been sucked into the ship, they've landed, that whole sequence is great, and they're sitting there. Dr. Smith finally appears on the upper deck, and and, uh, they have this little exchange, and he's... uh... I saw everything. You realize, of course, that we seem to be imprisoned here? Yes, quite a predicament. Have they uh, communicated with you yet? Not by any signal we can read. They're not in any great hurry, I don't suppose. Well, Dr. Smith, how can you possibly know that when we're almost certain that this ship is not from our planet? Is that what you think? Don't you? Well, if you're all agreed, I suppose I must go along with you. There's a breathable atmosphere out there, Doctor. Don and I are going out to investigate. We want you to join us. Of course. Who knows what we may discover? Dad, may I go too? I don't think so, Will. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> He's still totally convinced it's his buddies, you know, from ALS 14 Umbra. And, and that the most suspicious part of this whole thing as far as they're concerned, I would think, is the fact that he's volunteering to go out there with them. I mean, before, it's sort of like, oh, I can't go on the airlock. My heart's too uh, uh, feeble, and I, I can't do this or that. You know, my back, The uh, I'm afraid of heights. He's got excuses for everything, but this time he's actually like, well, let's get out there and explore. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, he, he can't wait to get out there, which is uh, totally out of character, as we, as we will come to know and love him for so anyway, they do go out. They're gonna they're gonna investigate. Smith's all happy. And Who knows what we may discover? Uh, That's one so of his lines. 
<laughs> they're marveling at the advanced technology way ahead of us and all this sort of thing. And I, Will, of course, wants to go, but he's told to stay in back and guard the women. And then I love the line again. Maureen says, well, we do need a man here, Will. So- <laughs> <laughs> now, okay, this is another one of these uh, physical world, scientific world, according to Irwin Allen. You're going to go onto this spaceship that you've never been on before, and they've just come from the vacuum of space, and now suddenly... Suddenly, the the atmosphere has been replaced. Okay, now they mention it. They say, well, they've somehow managed to replace the atmosphere. Okay, now I would be just a little bit worried, especially considering one of the lines earlier was maybe they just have an automatic way of uh, taking spaceships that come by because they're trying to say, why is it that we don't have a landing party meeting us here? If that's the case, do you really want to climb out of the spaceship without your helmet? Okay. <laughs> and remember, there's these things that could be called germs. I mean, didn't you at least read War of the Worlds or something? And you see all these fibers and everything. You kind of look like you're inside a big giant stomach. You might really consider about at least wearing the helmet, even if you don't close the visor for crying out loud. But, of course, uh, that would interfere with the, the dialogue, I guess. So they just they run out there without helmets or their their spacesuits at all i think smith is wearing a jumpsuit at that point that's about the the extent of his preparation yes he's changed out of his uh his regular dress uniform into this jumpsuit of course we have no idea where he found the jumpsuit but he's got it on one thing to note is look for his little colonel eagles to appear and disappear my wife lisa's a a big one for catching continuity errors she's always pointing those out to me so i promised i would mention that anyway they're they're exploring and they come into the uh, alien control room and then it cuts back to the spaceship and Will is frustrated that he can't go out there and explore and he has this neat little scene where he he's able to trick the robot into letting him go out the door because the robot's guarding the door to make sure nobody nobody leaves and uh, it's it's kind of a cute little scene where he imitates Dr. Smith's voice and two steps forward my mechanical friend and out he goes and this will be a uh, a critical plot point in the future when uh, the robot uh, basically asserts his more sinister uh, orders or tries to implement his more sinister orders. Uh, and Will has figured this out in this earlier episode that he can imitate Smith and, and pull it off. It's not a really... I, he doesn't sound like Smith at all, but he gets the kind of the... uses the, the Smith... the Smithian vocabulary, if you will. Move aside, yeah. my dear boy! It doesn't yeah. doesn't really sound like I don't know how a robot would use yeah. it, but maybe he's more focusing on the uh, vocabulary than the actual tone. Yeah, m- maybe the rhythm or something like that. But yes, I, I, it's a cute little bit though. And Will's out there and and he's exploring and he stumbles onto this this chamber with all these little. Uh, Air mattresses is what they yeah. look like on the floor. I can figure out what it is. Yeah, they're definitely and, inflated. They're the giant consoles or whatever it is that he's supposed yeah. to be stepping on. They kind of move around as you step on them and just sort of fall over to the side. You know, they're, they're not even anchored on the cement uh, studio floor, but it's funny. And it when the, the men go past there, they, they're more careful about not stepping on them. But I think Will kind of enjoys kind of uh, bouncy jumping on them. Well, as the act ends here he he makes a he makes a turn in that 
big chamber with all the little air mattresses on the floor, turns around towards the camera. And of course, we get the great scene where the bubble creature, the alien, is rising up behind him. And then we cut to commercial. And uh, this was another scene that reminded me of another uh, science fiction film. It kind of gave me the vibe of like the movie Alien when they were inside of the derelict spaceship. They actually called it the derelict spaceship in, uh, mm-hmm. in Alien. And there's that chamber with all the little eggs. I mean, obviously, it, uh, much more high tech and much more, uh, <laughs> much more gruesome, I suppose, and gory to, to in the Alien movie. But it had that same kind of vibe to me. It would surprise me if the the person who uh, directed that or uh, wrote that in or was thinking about it might have remembered the the vibe that he got seeing this as a kid growing up because it was a creepy scene. This was one of the nail-biting scenes, you know, and of course you're going to have to watch a commercial for Oscar Mayer wieners or Tang (laughs) uh, uh, tangerine-flavored drink or something, stuff that's going to constantly have absolutely nothing to do with you're gonna come on get back there what's going on with will you know i mean <laughs> so you can you can taste the frustration of the audience at that point but it's a cool alien i mean it's got these electric bolts that are added in this shocking zapping sound and uh, you don't know if it's uh uh completely organic or if it's kind of it kind of ties in with the ship having you know a mixture of mechanics and and uh, fibrous material, a mixture of the physical and the organic. So uh, that was a cool uh, effect. Oh, I, I do too. It's one of the few aliens in this entire series that basically isn't just a guy in a suit speaking English or, or just, you know, like Frankenstein. I mean, he's actually, uh, it was actually interesting that they used, you know, the, the electrical charges as a form of communication. Mm-hmm. If you stop and think about it, I mean, how many uh, science fiction shows bothered to do that where you're in a universe where you've never met before, and guess what? They don't speak English. Star Trek, they're all speaking English. Now, I know they've got this thing about, well, the universal translator, but, you know, is it also the universal lip synchronization device? Because not only are they speaking English, but their lips are moving just like they're pronouncing English. So, exactly. It, you know, they, this is a rare moment where they actually kind of stick to a reality-based uh, introduction with an alien life form. Right, right. Um, we we cut back to John and Don are still in the alien control room going through the star charts. And I just wanted to point out something again because you'll see them again. I love the little alien control panel because I, I always called them the jello molds. They look like uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> they look like jello molds that have lights in them. Uh, they will return again and again and again, the jello molds, they're, they're the, the univer- the, the, the generic alien control device. But they're they're getting some information that will help them down the road because John is saying something to the fact they've mapped this whole quadrant of the galaxy mm-hmm. and we're we're looking at different planets based on their size and so that'll come in and to any, play later on. Whatever cheesiness the jello modes have, keep in mind these are lit from beneath which always gives it kind of an eerie look uh, but that's, uh, the trade-off is once again the optics that are inserted overhead of the the star charts and everything those are really cool i mean it's almost like he's in a observatory or a planetarium where the entire ceiling is the screen so right. uh it's a it's an awesome effect and certainly just as good as anything you'd see on star trek the next generation or oh uh, it's very very creative or voyager and- where they had the mapping room there uh, right. i don't remember what they called it but uh, it those actually look more primitive 
primitive than the one here in this episode. It seems like you almost get to where you, you're recognizing the same pictures over and over. You know, is that the dog nebula again? <laughs> you know, but but still, you know, it must the audiences must have been wowed by it. I was. Oh yeah, they're actually photographs from the uh, Caltech, the Mount Palomar Observatory. They're they're credited if, at the end of every every episode, so they're not just drawings or anything. So very cool. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Smith stumbles onto where Will is and. He has this great look on his face as he as he walks into the room and he's sort of looking at at Will and he and he sees the alien and he, it almost looks like he's going to faint because he's seeing something so so yeah. bizarre and so incongruous with what he had imagined he was going to see. I call, it's like I call it the space barnacle. It looks like this giant space barnacle and it starts zapping. And when he hears that thing start zapping, it's like, oh, wait a minute, this this isn't right. This isn't what, you know, I was expecting to see somebody in a certain uniform from my country or wherever his country is, which we never find out. As far as I know, we never discover who it is that Smith works for, which is probably just as good. But, you know, I guess they didn't want to mention Russia and it obviously couldn't be China. So, uh, right. They kept, they deliberately kept it uh, vague. I love that. Of course, it's 30 years in the future. It could be some other foreign power, like uh, Sweden or something. Or (laughs) or I like the way they did it in the movie where it's like the sedition, (laughs) you know, who comes up with the names, you know, the sedition. That's, that's a wonderful villainous sounding name with a sedition. He's totally flummoxed, and, and his, you could just see the, the blood rushing out of his face when he realizes, wait a minute, these aren't humans? I was so sure of this. And anyway, Will's trying to communicate with him. Dr. Smith almost immediately pulls the, his pistol out. It looks like he's about to shoot first and ask questions later. Yeah, and Will talks him out of it, and Will prevents him from shooting it on several occasions. No, don't shoot! He was in that thing. I disturbed him. I think I can communicate with him. Not human. Nothing. And I was so sure. Human? Out here? Billions of miles from the Earth? No, don't! Maybe they can help us. I mean, they're not like us, but maybe they are. Very well, my boy. See what you can do. And it's only out of frustration later on at some little, they start bickering, Will and, and Smith do. And it's, you know, if you're trying to have a communication with an alien and telling him you're friendly, it's probably not a good idea to start having an argument with your wife or your stepchild <laughs> or, you know, whatever. You know, where you start yelling at your kid, I told you not to stop sucking your thumb. You know, what's the alien going to make out of that? It's sort of like, a, even if you think they're not a threat to you, you're probably going to kill the, the adult just to stop the child abuse here, you know. And let's face it, Smith is yelling at this little eight-year-old kid. It can't look very good. Right. Well, in the meantime, the ladies back on board have discovered Will has escaped, and Maureen is just totally nonplussed by that whole situation. <laughs> when, when are they going to learn? I mean, anytime you tell the kids you have to stay here, they're always going to disappear. In this series especially, it's either going to be Will or it's going to be Penny. You know, somebody is always going to leave. When not, that's the purpose of the kids is to abandon ship the moment you tell them, you know, this is dangerous, you can't do it. And more times than not, you know, they always say, this is, you know, you really have to learn from this. And they never do. They never do. Well, that's what my wife was saying. She says, you know, they seem like such strict parents in the way they deal and, and relate to the, the kids. But despite the fact, 
Will must disobey or leave or Penny leave multiple times. They never seem to suffer any <laughs> any consequences for it. But yeah. you're right. Let's That's just their run purpose. Th- let's let's uh, tease this scenario out. Okay, I don't think I'm. Sp- giving too much of a spoiler to alert the audience that at the end of this episode, they're going to escape, okay? They're going to leave, and they're going to get out of that spaceship. Now, if Will had left the ship, and it didn't happen that they found out that he left the ship, they would have left their kid on board that ship, you know? And they could have gone millions of miles before they realized, oh, you know, when's Will going to come up and do the dishes here? I mean, he didn't (laughs) even have supper, What's the deal? Is he playing chess with a robot? I mean, come on. Oh, my God. I think we left him in the ghost ship. Oh, by the way, they mentioned it. They called it the ghost ship at one point. Did you catch that? Oh, yes. It looks like a ghost ship. Looks uh, like a ghost ship. Yeah. So they're they're very mild-mannered when it comes to allowing these... uh, uh, the girls and boys, the little kids, to just basically leave the ship, and it's nothing more than a slap on the wrist. Right. This whole scene with Will and Dr. Smith and confronting the aliens and everything, you remember we were talking last week about how the Lost in Space is not one for making social commentary, and my wife was talking to me about this. Well, it kind of seems like they were making a little bit of a social commentary on there, and I said, oh, that's just, they're just showing Dr. Smith to be Dr. Smith. I'm not sure if they were or not, but I thought it was a good scene. I really did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I liked it. So Dr. Smith does wind up. He gets frustrated in the end. He takes a, takes a shot at the uh, alien, and of course... We are friendly. We're from the planet Earth. We are on our way to Alpha Centauri. No, no, no. Back to Earth. He doesn't seem to read me no matter what I say. He'll read this. You ruined everything! Why did you do that? They're much bigger than we are. Look, they're coming! Will says, now you've ruined everything, and that sets off a whole slew of the aliens uh, attacking the the uh, Robinsons and Will, and it's a it's a it's a race to get back to the ship before they get uh, overtaken by the aliens. Fortunately, they look like they're kind of being rolled on little rollers, and those things don't go too well over the inflatable tonsils. So uh, they're able to stay significantly ahead of them. And the cool part, though, is when they get close to the ship, Don throws a switch, and you hear those. But you don't see anything. I mean, it's not an optical effect. But then he announces, I've thrown a force field over him. I don't know how long he can hold him back. And it's cool. You know, it's sort of like, yeah, again, I love this force field thing. I like Oh, I it. love the force field, yeah. It's the first John- time that we've seen this thing uh, in action. And uh, imagine, you know, I, I don't think that, that they had force fields in any of the other uh, science fiction uh uh, movies at that time. I don't think they had one in Flash Gordon or anything, and that was back in the 1930s. So it's sort of a new concept, I believe. I'm, they probably had it in a radio show or maybe in a in a book, but to see it in action was pretty cool. And oh, it, it was since really you didn't know cool. it existed, you're like going, man, they're almost about to get clobbered. So this is almost like a duex machina. Oh, well, we got this force field. Do we forget to mention that? You know? <laughs> so The invisible hand is holding them back. Well, it certainly stops the the bubble men because they basically, as soon as that force field goes on, they just basically freeze in their tracks. And and it gives John an opportunity to, 
I was a little confused, but he basically starts cutting a hole, I think, in the hull of the ship, basically, to provide him with a way to escape, is what yeah. it looks like. Now, again, remember, he doesn't have a helmet on. So the right. moment that that actually works, he's probably, first, he's going to get sucked over to that thing, and it's going to, uh, the suction is going to be so intense, it's going to turn him inside out. And the only thing that's going to be left on the inside is that his aluminum foil spacesuit. But he's not worried about that. You don't hear anything. And the interesting thing about it is, when he's shooting the rifle at the wall to open it up, there's no laser beam. It's like it's ah, invisible. you notice that too. But That's then what when I he shoots sure. it at the at the barnacle beast, the, the barnacle bubble, or whatever you want to call it, then you see the laser. So it's it's kind of a selective optical effect. Well, Irwin only had a budget for, <laughs> for one laser beam per show, so they saved it for the. Uh, although it's funny because he's shooting it at the wall, like you said, and there's sparks. You know, you can see it's almost like a blowtorch effect on the. Uh, on the far wall there. But yeah, I saw that too. So that's good catch. Good catch. And then he cuts it. He cuts it and you don't see it open. You don't see a crack or anything, but he runs the board and he says, let's get out of here. You know, fire up the engines or whatever. And it's sort of like, okay, what is it that you saw that told you now it's going to open up? It does right. open up, but you know, maybe it's just a feeling he got. Who knows? He Anyway, it worked. And I love that, that whole sequence when the uh, Jupiter two takes off and, and it sort of turns and then starts to glide outside of the ship and they get away. What happened to the tractor beam, though? I guess maybe... Uh, exactly. Yeah. It just disappeared. Yeah. Obi-Wan must have deactivated it. <laughs> yeah. He was down there in the atomic pile. Uh, but the, again, looking through the, the windshield as they're approaching and it opens up and they leave, it's a great creepy effect, you know, because you don't know that it's going to open right, up right. enough and maybe it's going to snap down, you know, I'm... I'm you know they're going to escape. I mean, that's the joy of Lost in Space. Nobody's actually going to get killed. But you can't help but worry if this had been me, you know, I would have almost made it out and then it would snap shut and catch the tail end of the ship, you know. But uh, no, it doesn't. It lets him leave. And maybe it was deliberate on the alien's part. You don't know. But they allow him to leave in peace. And they've got a critical piece of information that they saw on their star charts. Well, the, the theater, the uh, observatory slash planetarium. They learned that there was a nearby planet. So right. from that, they're gonna, they know where they want to go now. Not to Earth, That's right. but at least to a place where they can land. Yes, because they need to re make repairs. I did want to mention real quick, though, that the, I love the sound effect of the Jupiter 2 when its engines are revving up. And it's, it almost has this echoey sound. It, sounds, it doesn't really sound like a jet engine, like the Batmobile or something like that. But it has a, it, it has a really distinctive spaceship sound and it's very echoey and i just love it and and every time i hear the that sound it just i know it's the jupiter 2 you mentioned echoey when they're inside that spaceship there's a lot of echoes they'll like say hello hello, hello. yes where are you yeah. where are you where are you and that's another right. one of those nightmarish type right. things you know where you you call and you can't be heard and there's a delay in the echo and it sounds like you're talking to somebody on skype you know what could possibly be worse than that right but right. Uh, it, that that works it works very well for that so there's all sorts of now we've talked about this before how there's usually a scene in every episode where there's kind of the padding scene and in this episode it's when they're basically exploring and you see kind of a lot of similar shots where they're wandering around and it, it it's effective because, you know, you're lost and you don't know. You're kind of lost in space. Uh, but yes. you don't know where you're going. And, you know, it's it's just sort of you may be going around in circles for all you know. But it does run out the clock and allow them to work around the parts that don't have dialogue. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, again, it there is a little padding there, but it didn't bother me. It wasn't. I didn't feel like it was extreme or anything like that. So they they escape, and we get another diary entry, and it sets up like you said the uh, the critical piece of information. There's a planet that they can put down on for repairs, but it does set up one one of the last little parts is there's a little, another little family squabble between Maureen and John. She's just like, we have no business landing on that planet. We're supposed to go to Alpha Centauri, and he has to explain to her that we need the gravity to repair the ship and get the uh, Jupiter 2 back in flying condition. So, Well, you got to give him credit. At least this time he didn't uh, slough it off on the computer and say, well, let the computer decide, dear. <laughs> you know. Yeah, he finally he finally made a made a stand there. So Asserting the epi- his masculinity at the last possible uh, moment. The last possible moment. You could tell, I love, though, if you, if you watch that scene as they're they're cu- they're showing the whole crew staring out into the uh, the viewport. There, Doctor Smith has the most decidedly unhappy look on his face because landing on that planet is not what he had in mind whatsoever. No, no, but we're going to see some wonderful um, special effects on how they do the reconnoitering of that planet in the next episode. That's really priceless. If you love the world according to Irwin Allen, uh, you're going to love the scientific. Uh, uh, breakthrough that they come through for this one. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So the cliffhanger in this one is just they leave you at the Jupiter 2 flying towards this planet, and we have to tune in next week to find out what is going to happen. Same space-time, same space channel. Absolutely. So do you have any other things you want to add for this episode? I think that's a pretty good summary. I thought I thought it was good. I, I really enjoyed it. If I thought that the whole series was going to be like this, you know, that I would have just like uh, thought this. I would have a hard time choosing between this and Star Trek. It, this actually, this episode was actually scarier than any single episode of Star Trek I can remember. Can you think of an episode of Star Trek that is uh, more scary than this? I mean, there are moments of tension, obviously. You know, the uh, Enterprise is about to blow up for this or that reason. But this has got that nightmarish vibe going on it, and you don't know what's going to go down. And uh, it, it's spooky. This is It wouldn't surprise me if it's the spookiest episode in the whole series. But it definitely uh, wins top marks for, for ambiance, atmosphere, and uh, the whole haunted space ghost ship vibe. Oh, I loved it. Yes, I agree. It, it's it's very creepy. It has the it has a great creepy vibe to it. It's scary. It's got some real tension in it, and it's it's giving us more of insight to the characters. Doctor Smith, he's starting to show some of his co- comedic uh, chops during this episode, but he's still menacing, and he's still he's still up to no good. He's a very nefarious character. The robot is still not to be totally trusted. No, I enjoyed it a lot. I really did. I think it's great. As far as the uh, kids uh, enjoying it, uh, I thought for sure, you know, my little five-year-old would love Lost in Space. Well, she was hiding behind me the entire time. You know, once I got on, <laughs> looking over my shoulder, she liked it. But, I mean, she wanted to have that protective cushion between her and the television screen. So uh, that was interesting. I imagine there was a lot of that going on to the regular CBS audience as well. I imagine so. Well, the censors were very delicate with that stuff, as we mentioned before. So Yeah, they may have gotten slapped down. You know, They might have said, okay, we let you get away with it that time, but time to, we need to reel it in. We got too many complaints of that last episode. Right, right. All right. Well, this was fun, Kurt. I really, uh, I really had a great time, and I enjoyed reviewing this with you, and 
We'll have to tune in next week to see what happens when the Robinsons make their way towards that unknown planet. Yeah, it's a nice little, it's not a cliffhanger that really has you on tinder hooks, like, you know, they're in danger or anything, but it's certainly very fascinating because you have no idea what awaits them there. Of course, once you see what's on that planet, you're going to know what's going to be on every planet that they appear because it's going to be the same soundstage and the same atmosphere and everything. <laughs> the same rocks, <laughs> the same, <laughs> nothing changes. But, uh, but for this first one, you know, anything can happen. Absolutely. Well, that is a downside. We're going to be lost on a planet after the next uh, episode for pretty much the rest of this season. But uh, let's don't give too much away. I guess that wraps it up for this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we'll be reviewing that third episode of Lost in Space titled Island in the Sky. Until then, Kurt, take care. Thank you. We'll be here. All right. We'll talk to you soon. See you, folks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.